Um, but it was one that I could totally relate to. He was talking about back when he was a teenager and looking at some of the pictures from when he was a teenager, and I wrote it down. He called it his terrible, cringy phase. <laughs> Does anybody else have a terrible, cringy phase? Maybe it wasn't when you were a teenager, but like that time of your life when you look back at it and you're like, oh. Maybe it was a hairstyle or a clothing style. Maybe it was an attitude or whatever. But you're just like, man, I cannot believe that I did that, said that, dressed like that. Or worse, I can't believe that I treated those people that way or that I thought that way. I'm so glad that you're all nodding your heads because I was worried that it would be just me. <laughs> and then we'd have a whole new set of problems in this room. Uh, but when I think about my terrible, cringy phases... Uh, I'm also really thankful for the people who knew me in those phases when I wasn't very lovable, but they loved me anyway. Um, man, how thankful am I for that grace? Well, I have the privilege of inviting my pastor who knew me during my terrible, cringy phase and chose to love me anyway. Uh, and that's pretty remarkable among the many great things that I could say about him. Um, but I'll just give you a brief introduction, and then I'll hand it over to Pastor Gary. Have been my pastor growing up, loved me during my uh, 90s bowl cut phase. Uh, the, does anybody remember a little product called Sun-In? Spray that in your hair, kind of bleach that out. Yeah, it was not pretty. And what was happening on the inside right here was way worse than what was happening on the outside. Um, but Pastor Gary was uh, retired in February of 2020 as the senior pastor of the Intersection, formerly known as Valley Open Bible. And I got to say, that was impeccable timing on the retirement. <laughs> you call, I mean, three weeks later and you'd have been stuck for a couple more years. So way to go on that. Um, but um, besides that, a little bit more direct implication that many of you may not have known, Pastor Gary has been on the governing board of this church since we started and has long been an advocate and friend for this church and has been very generous and kind to us all along the way. So I'm going to stop talking. We kind of cut our first part short today because we want to make sure we have plenty of time for Pastor Gary to come on up. Would you do me a favor and just welcome my pastor, Gary Hebden. Hallelujah for Jesus. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, absolutely love uh, the whole Armstrong family. They've been a big part of my life for a lot of years and uh, greatly appreciate you guys and thank you for the invitation. I'm going to uh, share on a, from a title that I've called Winning While Wanting. Winning While Wanting. Now, when I th think about wanting, I'm not talking about wanting a new Harley Davidson. <laughs> that would be true. <laughs> but that's not what I'm talking about. We kind of actually are living in a bit of a time of wanting. When you look, you know, I mean, how many would want our nation to be a little bit more at peace with itself? I mean, it's just craziness in the politics in the world and, and all the different things that trickle down to impact our lives individually and even corporately, collectively. It, it can affect us, of course. And then, I mean, and then all the things that have brought difficulty in churches. COVID. 
I mean, it's incredible. You know, we talk about there being different sides of the aisles at the U.S. Congress, but you go to a church, you got the one side of the aisle is mask wearers and the other side are non-mask wearers, and they're, they're not getting along. You know, you got, you got all kinds of things that really come, and you, you kind of want something different. But when you think about a time of wanting... It's not really then a time so much of, you know, something I just really want this. It's those times in which you as an individual and even sometimes potentially corporately, we encounter something that, that we, we really are kind of desperate for God to intervene. We just need God to show up. And in fact, if God doesn't show up, then the, the impact of that, the effects of that are going to be quite troubling to the peace of our lives and the joy of our lives. We, we want God to intervene. We need God to intervene. And, and the question really is, is, is it possible to have an attitude that expresses great trust and faith in God even when you're in the midst of a time of wanting? Can you, can you still exhibit this this deep reliance and trust and faith in God in, in, when you're going through something that can be difficult? And the answer, of course, is yes. And many of you have already proven that. I was reading in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, and we're going to go to a, another chapter in just a minute, but I, I want you to see, see Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, you pull that up. The, it is what we call the, of course, the heroes of the faith chapter. It's where it lists all these incredible men and women of faith who have, who have done great things in the name of God and have gone through some great difficulties in the name of God. But their faith was unwavering. They just trusted God. And uh, you get to verse 13 of that particular, and I'm reading from the New King James Version, uh, as it turns out, uh, in New King James, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 says this. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. It's kind of an incredible verse because it says, these all died in faith, not not having received the promises. Yes, they saw them afar off. They were assured of them. They embraced them. But they, they didn't count themselves as, as uh, people who were going to live forever on this planet. They were foreigners and strangers passing through. Their eyes were on a different place. And although they didn't receive the promises... They saw them far off, and they embraced them, and they accepted them. And I, and I think about these folks, and I think, you know, some of these people who died in faith, not having received the promises, incredible stories, incredible stories. Some of these people actually were stoned to death, but did not waver in their faith towards God. If you're throwing rocks at me, I'm like, God... You've got to show up right now, or you and I, we're not going to talk for a month, you know, or something. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, stoned to death, unwavering in their faith. Some of them were sawn in half 
but it did not shake their faith when the blades came to their body. And the way they did that, of course, back in those days, they would strap them to a plank, and then they would saw them in half this direction, not this way. They would go this way through their body, saw them in half. You know, I would be having some serious conversation about faith and God if somebody was starting to saw through that chunk of lumber coming to my body. They didn't waver. They, some of them, the, clearly tells us, some of them literally had their children torn from their arms, never to be seen again. Personally, I'd say, bring the saw, do not take my kids, you know? And yet, these people, their incredible stories of faith, they went through so much, but they did not shake in their faith. They stayed solid in their faith in God, even through some of that stuff. I'm reading through that in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm thinking to myself, what will my story read like? What will, what will your story read like? When you think about all the things you've gone through, the things you've faced, the, the, you know, whatever it is, when you have finally passed from this life into eternity, what will your story read like? You know, I think, man, I really, I want my life to be a testimony of the life of Jesus. That God was faithful even when I was going through some times of wanting. Could I still be winning while in a time of wanting? Lord, I'm not really wanting them to cut this board because I'm on it. Can we figure something else out? Your time of wanting, can you still be winning while you're wanting? It was a uh, hot summer day in 1968. How many were not alive in 1968? Wow. Well, I'm here to tell you it actually existed. <laughs> it, there really was such a day. It was a hot summer day in 1968. I was standing on the hay dock uh, right alongside of the outdoors cow lot on our dairy farm, right below Micah Peak out on the Salties Flats. And uh, I'm, I'm there with my father, and we are busting open bales of hay and scattering the hay in the, this long line of uh, mangers outdoor for the cows. And the cows are milling around out in the cow lot, and then they will see us. They come to the manger, and they begin to eat the hay. So I'm, I'm there busting open these with my, with my father. My little sister, Kathy, who was five years old, little tiny girl, she had been up there with us, and, uh, and I was just busy doing, doing what I got to do, and, and uh, then I saw that she apparently had gone down, climbed through a gate, and now was wandering through the cow lot and in her pink boots, and she's, she's walking through this bunch of cows out in the cow lot in her pink boots going across the cow lot because on the other side of the cow lot there are pens that have pregnant cows in them and these cows some of them are getting ready to give birth and and I'm supposing that little Kathy wants to see if there's any calves in the pens with the with the mothers so she's walking through that and then it happened 
Behind her where she couldn't have seen, suddenly one 1,500-pound Holstein cow took umbrage at the fact that this five-year-old little girl in pink boots would dare walk through the cow lot. And this Holstein cow put her head down and started charging full speed towards the back of my sister who didn't see the cow coming. In a flash, my father jumps over the manger. He hits an intersecting angle with this big old cow. And just before it gets to my sister, he hits this cow full force in the front left shoulder of the cow, knocking it off of its feet clear onto its side. Oh, he wasn't done. He was mad. He then dives down onto the ground, lands on the head of this cow full force, grabs the cow by the head, twists its head, flipping a 1,500-pound cow clear over on its other side. Oh, the cow jumps up. Its eyeballs were bulging out of its head like... You know, craziness. And the last thing I saw that day of that cow was as it was running the opposite direction and its tail waving its surrender as it was running away, uh, having dealt with my father. Now, I learned something that day. The cow did as well. We both understood that day. Something that we should have already known is don't mess with dad. Yeah, don't, don't mess with dad. Another very important lesson that we got that, I, I, that clearly, clearly seals itself in me, and that is this, that while it might have appeared that my dad was distracted by all the other work he was doing, one thing was certain, he had one eye on his daughter at all times. He knew where she was at. He knew what was going on, and the instance that she was in a situation that she could not handle, my dad, her father, my father, sprang into action, and he took care of business. And I want to just correlate that to God just for a minute. This would be a whole other sermon, and, I, and so i got to be careful here. But I just want to tell you that when you're going through a time of wanting, and if you ever wonder if God is aware or if God is paying attention, he absolutely is. If my earthly father knows exactly where, my, where his daughter is, I guarantee you that your heavenly father knows exactly where you're at, what you're going through, what you're facing. It doesn't matter if you're sound asleep. It doesn't matter if your back is turned to what's going on. It does not matter. God knows where you're at. God loves you. God cares about you. You matter to him, and his eye is always upon you. And in that time of need that he recognizes, he will dive into the midst of it, and you may not even be aware of it till eternity comes, because God's eye is always on you. I learned something and watched as well when, when uh, I recognized that my sister's faith in my father dramatically increased. That little girl in pink boots, she knew when and whose leg to run and hide behind. 
She knew. She would, she could, she knew who would watch out for her. She knew who would save her. Her faith, her faith in her father increased dramatically. And, and, uh, and reality was she would sometimes go to him when her brothers were being less than kind. And with tears in her eyes, she'd go crying. She was the apple of my dad's eye. And when little sister would go run into father, then there would be boys standing there looking at dad like this with dad taking care of business. She had faith that increased dramatically in her father. Now, I want to just talk about faith for just a minute. We'll get to the actual sermon here in a minute. <laughs> We're kind of on the introduction. The, uh, the uh, faith can really be an elusive concept. It's very elusive. Because, you know, if you take grace, you know, you know, grace is an easy definition, unmerited favor. We all nailed that down. But what is faith? And people have different ideas about what faith is and, and how it operates. And, and, and one of the things that makes it kind of elusive is that you get, you get some preachers, speakers, Christians uh, feeling pretty spiritual about things. And, and if you're going through a time of wanting and you, you, you're in the midst of it, and, and it's tough, and you're just getting hammered, their response is, well, you just need more faith, brother. You just need more faith. If you had more faith, you know. Insinuating that more faith would mean more of what I want when I want it. You know, if I just had more faith, I would have what I want when I want it. But then we read in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Seeing them afar off, they were assured of them and they embraced them, but they counted themselves really as strangers passing through. They died in faith, not having received the promises. They, were, they hadn't arrived yet. And, and so I think, well, how does that fit with this idea of, well, you just got to have more faith. Shouldn't, shouldn't living for God mean that, that I have established some sense of faith? And when I said yes to Jesus, somehow now I have, I've been enveloped by his, his godly bubble wrap. You know, And the more faith I have, the thicker the bubble wrap gets. And I can just bubble wrap through life. And everything bounces off of me and nothing harms me. I get everything I want when I want it because I am in the bubble wrap of God's, God's favor because I am a man, a hero of the faith. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> As yet, I've not met anybody who's actually had a very thick bubble wrap because Jesus clearly said, you're going to experience some trouble. You're going to experience some difficulty. It seems like, you know, faith should provide some level of protection. But you still find yourself in times of want. And how can you, how can you put all that together? How can, I, how can I be a man of faith, unwavering, and yet faced with times of want? 
Well, I want to read to you a passage of Scripture. Now we're at the sermon. <laughs> and it's a very familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, it's probably the most well-known passage of Scripture in the entire Bible. It is probably uh, even many people who are not followers of Jesus are aware of this passage of Scripture. And uh, there's probably a number of you that actually have it memorized. It's only six verses long. It is Psalm 23. So turn to Psalm 23 there in your Bible. I'm going to read it in the New King James Version. Some of you probably have NIV or New Living or something else, but, but uh, New English Translation or whatever you might be using. I'm going to read from the New King James Version. Uh, it's Psalm 23. It's six verses. It'll take just a, a few seconds to read it. So I'm, going to, I'm just going to read the whole chapter to you. And, of course, it begins with those familiar words that we probably most of us can quote or have heard some point in our life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The NIV version says the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. It's incredible. I lack nothing. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Prior to penning those words, King David of Israel is on the run. He's running for his life. He doesn't have much time because the enemy, the enemy has already penetrated the gates of Jerusalem and now they are running through the streets of Jerusalem heading towards the king's palace. Their intent is to take him out and establish a different king. He is, doesn't have much time. So King David has to, when he hears this, he quickly has to gather himself together and those that are with him, and he leaves the king's palace. Now, if you can picture in your mind where this is at, the, the Temple Mount, as you might see it in today, you know, you might think of where the Temple Mount is at, Mount Moriah. And then just off the, the southern slope of that, there's another hill. It's called Mount Zion. And on Mount Zion is where the king's palace is at. Up above that, one day, Solomon will build on Mount Moriah the temple. But just below that, just a little bit, and yet also higher than a lot of other places, is the king's palace. It's on Mount Zion. And the king, David, he has just enough time to, to sprint for the doors of the palace, his a bunch of people with him, and they descend a very steep, steep hill into the Kidron Valley. They go about a hundred yards is all across the bottom of the of the Kidron Valley. Now they have to make their way up a very extremely steep side, the Mount of Olives, very steep, and it goes way up. It's a tough, tough climb. 
They're in a hurry. They're trying to get up this hill as quickly as they can. They have run down as quickly as they can. They've run across. Now they're running up as quickly as they possibly can, running for their lives. David is fleeing, and his destination is the wilderness. It's the wilderness. And if you can fast forward from this event, it's about a thousand years later that Jesus will go to the wilderness. For 40 days and for 40 nights, Jesus will be alone in the wilderness. It is a dry, barren ground. It is rocks and dirt. There are no trees. There are caves. There's not like a lot of water to be found. The sons of Korah, they they wrote these words from from the wilderness, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. It's a dry, barren ground. There's no, there's no fields of green grass. There's no grapes growing. There's no olive trees. There's nothing. It is dry and barren. Jesus goes there, and for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan is working on him, tempting him, trying to get him to bow down and worship the devil himself. In fact, on one occasion, Satan says to him, listen, listen, I'll tell you what. You, Jesus, bow down and worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. What would make him think he could do that? Well, the Bible says he's the prince and the power of the air. The Bible says that he is the God of this age. And until the king of kings returns, he's got some authority on this planet. So we are messed up as a result of it. But there he is. So he's saying, Jesus... You bow down and worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of this earth. And Jesus did not. He did not. He resisted the devil, and the devil fled from him. If you, if you rewind back a thousand years to King David, King David's heading to that dry, barren land. He's, he's on the run. He's been there before. He, he's familiar with it. Because he actually went there at a different time of his life and hid out from King Saul because King Saul wanted to kill him. And so he went to that dry and barren dirt and rock ground to hide out in caves so that hopefully Saul wouldn't find him and kill him. That's where he's going now. He and these people with him, they're running up the slopes of the Mount of Olives. Their destination is the wilderness. He's on the run. You see, in, in, in this time when David is running, he's not running from a king. He's not running from some other nation. He, he's not running from Saul who wants to kill him. Now he is running from his own son who wants to kill him, Absalom. He's running for his life. Absalom wants to kill him. Absalom wants to become king. You see, catastrophe has darkened the doors of his home. Uh, he, he, it's, it's a bad situation. The sins of his family have surfaced to the degree that now his family is at odds with each other. Everybody's at everybody's throat in his family, and it's threatening the peace and the unity of the nation. 
so that Israel as a nation is in trouble. Some of hundreds, thousands are now attacking their own people, their own city, wanting to take out King David. It's, it's a bad situation. But it, it actually began 11 years earlier. Because 11 years earlier, David's oldest son, Amnon, his firstborn, be, starts to feel like he's in love with his half-sister, David's daughter by a different mother. Amnon feels like he's just madly in love with Tamar, his half-sister. So he, he arranges deceitfully to have her come into his bedroom where he then overpowers her and rapes her. Once he rapes her, he doesn't love her anymore. Now he despises her. And he basically is throwing her out and her life is ruined. What is she going to do now? Ultimately, though the Bible doesn't give clearly what happens, most likely she left town and would have had to go to the town of her grandfather, her, or her mother's parents' town, which is north of the Sea of Galilee. She would have had to go live there because grandpa would take care of her. You see, because when this happened, it really... 11 years before David now running for his life from Absalom, it created quite a turmoil in the family. His Tamar's full-blooded brother, Absalom, is livid. He, nothing, nothing will satisfy his anger except the death of his half-brother, Amnon. And so people are wondering, what's David going to do? What's David going to do about this? And David was absolutely paralyzed on knowing what to do. He didn't know what to do. And so what did he do? He did nothing. This great king, this courageous man who had done such great victories against enemies, a man whose, whose nation would sing songs about him, this great courageous leader was proving to be a lot less effective father to his own children. Mm. You know, it's a tough situation. He does nothing. Two years go by, and they, they have family gatherings. They get together, you know, like families do. But it just kind of sort of swept the thing under the carpet. And, you know, let's just kind of act like it didn't happen. And, but every time they'd get together for Thanksgiving and Christmas, everybody knew, everybody knew that there's kind of this elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about because David did nothing. And so you could kind of feel the awkwardness and the tension, but, you know, they'd get together. That's what families would do. But after two years went by, Absalom finally found his opportunity, and he brutally, viciously murders his brother Amnon. This time, David can't just forget about it. You'd have thought, if he was really behaving like a father, the fact that his daughter got raped, that would have been enough. That would have been enough. Somebody messed with my dad's daughter, mm -mm 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 -mm, on that guy's head and neck getting cranked. 
You know, my dad wouldn't put up with it. Somebody messed with my daughter? No, 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 no. Excuse me just a minute while I take my pastor's card. I'm going to go set it over here somewhere because now we're going to take care of business. You, know, you don't mess with my daughter. But some reason David didn't. He was paralyzed because it was his son who had done this. He didn't know what to do. Two years later, now one son murders or another. What's he going to do? He's got to do something. And, and Absalom knows this. So Absalom flees to the town of his grandfather, the grandfather of both Tamar and him, up above the Sea of Galilee. He flees town because he knows David's got to do something. David just kind of says, well, okay, well, he's out of town, and, and uh, he's, he's kind of just dealing with it. An, another three years goes by. David, as a father, is missing. The brokenness of his family is killing him. His family is disjointed, broken. It is, it's, it's not good. He's lost two sons and a daughter now. He's miserable. And so finally he sends word. It's now been five years since Tamar was raped. And he sends word up north to say, Absalom, you can come back to Jerusalem. He sets some parameters around that, though. It's not like you can just come into the king's palace, though. You know, I put some guidelines around that. But you can come back to Jerusalem and you won't be killed for having done what you did. So Absalom does. He comes home. But he's bitter. He's upset. He's mad because his dad, you know, should have taken care of it in the first place. He didn't. Now I'm in trouble for taking, doing what my dad should have done all along. You know, he's, so, he, so he's bitter. So he sets up camp in the gates of the city. Now the gates of the city uh, are, are where uh, appointed judges and elders would meet and they would deal with the people's issues, grievances they would come. And it's kind, of, it's kind of a two-gate system when you walk into the old city of Jerusalem. You can go through the outer gate, and it's kind of a, a big room. It's squared off or oblong, depending on the particular gate. And, and you go in there, and then there's another gate you can go through to actually get into the city. And they, they make it a like that for the protection if if an enemy got in through the first gate now they're going to have people over top of them throwing stuff on top of them and everything it's going to be difficult so so but in that area they would have the judges or the elders of of israel come and they would deal with the grievances of the people so absalom sets up shop and for six years he sits in there and people from Israel are coming to him with their grievances. And he's fixing them. He's in, in their favor. He's working out, working it all out. After six years, he has now stolen the heart of the people from his father, David. And he starts telling people stuff. He's undermining his dad. He's saying, like, you know, I don't know why in the world David and my father is still king. I mean, do you, when was the last time you saw him down here? When was the last time he cared about you? When the last time he showed up? He sits up there in his ivory palace, sleeps in a king's bed. He's got cooks who cook marvelous dinners for lunches and breakfasts for him on a king's table. He's got people that take care of his laundry. He's got guards that go with him. He's got all kinds of stuff. He's up there taking care and enjoying life. And what do you guys got going on? When was the last time he showed up? But, you know, I'm here for you. And the people began to their heart would begin to be endeared to him. 
day came when finally he, having undermined his dad, it's, it's time. And people said, you should be our king. And they flooded the streets of Jerusalem. They're on the way to the king's palace. And David has to flee for his life down the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives. It's a, it's a steep hike, and it's a long, steep hike. They get up. They, then they go all the way into the wilderness. It's dry and deserted and desperate place to have to to be David is there he doesn't want to go to war with his son so he runs for his life he doesn't want to have to go to battle against his own family he runs for his life now if you can just picture for me with me a moment the Bible doesn't give us this little piece. So I want you just to imagine with me for a minute because this is what's happening that led him to write Psalm 23. And if you can if you can picture with me for a minute this this desperate run for life, they're exhausted, they're now in this dirt and rock area and and some of his guys say, "Hey, uh, they're not right now coming after us. We can quit running. We can maybe stop and rest for a little bit. Maybe we can camp here. Absalom is partying back in Jerusalem. Vile things going on there. Uh, they will come for us, but they're not coming right now. We got some time to rest. Uh, David, maybe why don't we just stop, and this is probably be a good place. Let's, let's just set up some camp. And, and so the folks with him begin to do that. Can you imagine now, David... David has the weight of the world on him. He is in a true time of wanting. It is a desperate situation. And if, if I'm David, and if you can imagine this happen, where you would then just kind of walk away, maybe you go like 50 yards away from everybody else. You just kind of walk off a little ways. And, and I can picture David sitting on a, on a rock, and finding this place out there, and he just sit on a rock, and he, he's holding his head in his hands, and he may be rocking back and forth and just rubbing his head. I mean, the world has just caved in on him. It is a desperate, desperate time, and, and ah, it's bad, it's bad. What would you do if you were his friend? You'd go over and check on him. And so if you can think of it, one of his friends comes over to David and stands there at David's side and says, hey, uh, David, uh, you know, man, it's been a rough day. Yeah, yeah, it has been. David, I just, uh, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm really sorry. I mean, just didn't see this coming. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Is there, is there anything I can do for you? Is there something I... Can I, is there something I can do for you? I mean, you've got to be in a world of hurt. I mean, what, what can I do for you? And out from under the rubble of his whole family and nation caving in on him, you, he's, he's just sitting there and hearing somebody say to him, David, what, can I do anything for you? And he'd look up and say, hey, thanks, man. But... Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. But David, um, you know, we didn't have time to bring any fried chicken and, and pizza and whatever. We, did, we got some old dried out muffins. Can I, can, I, can I just bring you a little something to eat? You know, well, listen, thank, thank you, friend, but 
the Lord is my, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Well, it's not very green here, David. It's pretty dry. It's pretty barren. I mean, can I at least get you a cup of Starbucks or something? Can I, can I get you a water? Can I, can I get you something to drink? No, seriously, man, I, I appreciate it. But you know what? The Lord's got me. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, he, may, he leads me by the still waters. David, I mean, seriously, I get it. You're, you're trying to put on a good face, but look, I'm your buddy. You don't have to put on a good face for me. This is pretty rough. It's pretty rough. I mean, what, what can I do for you? Hey, friend, I, I know you're trying to help, but listen, truly, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. You know, and you think, well, what's the deal? Is David just lost it? Is he some kind of a religious nut? Is he, is he one of those over-the-top spiritual people that's like, you know, the, 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 the crazies, you know, the Pentecostals, you know? What's his, what's his deal, you know? And what is wrong with him, you know? Uh, you know, you have to kind of wonder what's going on in David's mind. But, but this is what you and I need to catch, and it is this, that, that these are the times and this is, these are the kinds of things that separate, that separate those who know God from those who know about God. This is what distinguishes those who can talk about God from those who talk to God. When you are in a time of wanting, thank you, but I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to him. I'm in a time of desperate wanting, and I know who I need to talk to. David is buried under this horrible weight, this burden. And you have to ask yourself, where does that kind of faith come from? that he can express that he restores my soul when a lot of us would say, I'm mad at God. I'm just ticked right now, and I'm not happy with God. Where was he when that happened? Where is he right now when I'm calling out to him and it seems like all this is caving in? You know, I'm mad at God. I'm not even sure I'm going to go to church again. I'm not sure I believe in him anymore. Where is he? What, how do you get the kind of faith that you can win even while you're in want? I'll give you three quick observations. I got like five minutes to do 20 minutes. So let's do this quick. <laughs> Observation number one, faith comes from experience. Faith comes from experience. You know, after that barnyard experience with my sister Kathy, you know, I sometimes... I'd have to go out there because I got to work with the cows. I'm a, I'm a teenager and I got responsibility out there. And my sister would go out there and I couldn't see her. The cows are everywhere. I would have to look under the belly of the cows through the legs and try to find those little pink boots. And there she would be over there somewhere. You know, uh, she would walk through that cow lot like she owned the cows. And the reason she could walk with such confidence in those cows, among those cows, is because she knew that her father truly owned the cows. And when you think about David, David could have this deep faith 
even a time of wanting, because he knows who owns the future. These people, they're getting stoned to death. They're getting sawn in half. Their kids are being ripped from their arms. But they saw from afar off certain promises of God. And even though they died not having received the promises, they were unwavering in their faith because they knew who owned the future. And they trusted in him completely. See, they've had experiences with God. David says, look, the Lord is my shepherd. Yes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He could say that because he's been in the, shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. He could say that because when he was a teenager, he had an experience. His father sent him with lunch buckets in hand over to the army of King Saul, who was in a war against the Philistines. And, when he, and he's got to take lunch to his brothers. And when he gets there, the, 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 the Israeli army is on one side, on a, on a hillside. The Philistines are camped on another. In the middle is the Valley of Elah. And in the middle of the Valley of Elah stood death, waiting whoever would come and battle. Goliath said, hey, why should everybody die? Let's just have this place be the death of one person. So you send your greatest warrior down here. You send your greatest warrior down here, and, uh, and if kills me, then all the Philistines will be your slaves. If I kill your great warrior, then all you guys will be slaves to us. This is the place that someone's going to die. Not everybody else should have to die, just one. Who's going to do it? And nobody would go. Little teenage David goes up and he says, why in the world are you guys letting this goofball mock our God? He picks up a few rocks. He goes down into the valley. The giant Goliath says, are you kidding me? Why, why don't you think I'm a dog or something? Why are you sending a kid after me? You know, David gets his swing, his, his swing on and rock comes right in the forward of Goliath. Goliath goes down. He is dead. David's already been in the valley of the shadow of death. He could have died there, but his experience is that God took care of him. He knew it. And that was written and recorded so you and I can read it and take hope in it. Now, here's what I'm going to do. Boy, this is going to really have to go quick. <laughs> this, uh, this is a journal I got from my daughter, Leah, last Christmas. It's really cool. She knows I like journals. She knows I journal. And so I have, uh, you know, life journals and use that, and I journal in them all the time. And sometimes I put in those journals, you know, a, a note to one of my kids, you know, hey, dear Isaac, dear Jacob, dear Leah, dear Isaac, Jacob, and Leah. And, uh, but they'll never find them because there's like 150 journals, and there's, there's, they're buried, in it. and I know what's going to happen after I die. They're going to say, Anybody want this? I ain't reading through all that stuff. And they're, they're all going to go in the garbage dump, right? So they're not going to see these marvelous things I've recorded for them. So I thought, my daughter got me this marvelous, this marvelous journal. I thought, what am I going to do with it? I thought, I don't want it just to do like I've done all the others. So I decided it's a journal to my kids. And so, so it, the front page explains it to them. And then, then as you go through it, it's just filled with notes, letters, and and things that my heart to my kids, things that I've experienced in life, things I've learned as a person who is trying to grow in God, things that, that, I, that impacted my life, things I want them to not forget about, how I think about them, 
how I think about God, why they should continue living for the Lord no matter what. I just wrote all these things in here, and I don't write every day in it. I, just as something comes up, I do. When I'm dead and gone, they'll find this on my desk down in my basement. They're going to go down in my basement office. They're going to clean out all my stuff. They're going to throw out all those old journals, and they're going to see this one sitting on my desk and say, oh, that's the one Leah got. They're going to open it up, and they're going to see, dear Isaac. They're going to see, dear Jacob. They're going to see, dear Leah. They can tear out those pages and take them home, and they can have recorded the experiences of their father about things that mattered. You see, faith comes through experience. We should not forget the things we go through. I want to encourage you, moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas, aunts and uncles, write some things down for the next generation. We have the beauty of the Bible. I'm not saying that all of this is anointed of God. I'm not saying this is the word of God. I'm saying this is the word of a father who loves his kids. And it gives them the best I can give them. Faith grows through our experiences. Very quickly, observation number two. Don't hate the process. Embrace the author and finisher of our faith. Don't hate the process. Embrace the author and finisher of our faith. Sometimes, I'm just going to rip through this really quickly. Sometimes the process is difficult. We encounter a testing of our faith at times. Uh, but if you just keep your eyes on what's going wrong all the time, it's going to break you apart. You're not going to have the ability to win while wanting because you're so focused on, on the wanting that you forgot who already overcame on your behalf. These people died in faith, not having received the promises, but they saw them afar off. They were assured of them. And even though they were getting stoned or sawn in half or kids ripped from their arms, they didn't waver because their eyes were on the one who was in charge of the process of building their faith. I wasn't born a pastor. I was born with Steppenwolf's song in my mind, born to be wild. You know, that, that, that was me. You know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, Norm and I, we just went to our 50th graduation reunion just a few weeks ago. It was awesome. And incredibly, they called me up in advanced and asked if I would pray. I'm thinking, are any of you even Christians? You know, I mean, what, you know, I know I wasn't, you know, I mean, what, what, what's going on? Oh, yeah, I'll pray, you know. So I get there, and one of the guys that kind of gets some responsibility there, he comes up to me, he says, he's, uh, he, I said, hey, thanks for asking me to pray. I'd be happy, to, you know, to do that. And he says, yeah, he says, he says I'm, I'm kind of surprised, too. He said, because when I remember, you had the devil in you. And I'm thinking... Yeah, well, thank God he's out of me now. You know, he's, he's not there now. I mean, but I got to pray. I wasn't born a pastor. The, the, the development of my faith had to go through a series of things that wasn't always easy. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the author. Not me. I can't just, if you just, if you just need more faith. Well, that's not my fault. He's the author and finisher of my faith. He's in charge of the process. My job is simply to be responsive to him. And I'll go through some stuff. And no amount of faith is going to bubble wrap things off of me. Because the process sometimes involves things getting through to me to test my faith. 
And so I'm just going to keep my eyes on him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't get your eyes on all the other stuff. That's where a guy like David can make it. That's where people like you and I, we can make it and we can make it strong in our faith because our eyes are fixed on him, not on the stuff we go through. Lastly, real quick, observation number three, don't focus on the famine, prepare for the feast. Don't focus on the famine, prepare for the feast. David is on the run. He's, he's, life is a serious mess. He's getting offered dry biscuits and cold coffee. You know, it's just, you know, it's not good. It's, it's, it's in a real time of want. And, and the guy's saying, hey, can I get you something? Can I, can I get you? We don't have much. And, and what does he say? He's, he, he said, hey, thanks, but Lord, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I just got finished eating a major dinner at the table of the king. You know, I just came from that. And the cooks, the best in Israel, made us. But, you know, now I'm sitting here in a dry, dirt and rock-infested ground. But you, Lord, I'm not worried about what I'm going to eat because you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. You're not on the throne anymore. Doesn't matter. He anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David no longer in the house, the palace of the king, but he's not, he's not looking back at that. He's looking forward to what's in front of him. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you have your eyes on what could have been, what you think should have been, what somebody owes you or whatever it might be, if you keep your eyes on that, it will destroy you. But you get your eyes focused and fixed upon Jesus. Look to him. He will get you there. He will get you there. Oh, there will be times of wanting. But you will survive it, and you will get there. Well, those people who got stoned to death didn't survive it. Oh, seriously? They're walking streets of gold. They're not complaining. The guy got sawn in half. He was declaring the word of God, Isaiah. He got sawn in half. He ain't complaining. He's walking the streets of gold. He has a mansion in heaven that Jesus promised him. Not worried about what he went through and what he had. His eyes were on another promise. And he did not waver. Neither should you. Neither should I. Yes, we will experience times of wanting. But our eyes should be on Jesus. And you fix them on there. God will get you through anything. He'll get you through anything. Put your trust there. Father, I'm just so grateful you faith is sometimes a bit of an elusive concept and yet I know this you are not elusive so all of the doctrinal stuff and all the things that we try to define there's one thing Lord that goes way beyond definition it's just something I know that I know that I know that you got this you got me and even though I may at times find myself like David and so many others, in times of want. I want to be a one who is winning while wanting. 
And I know the way to do that is to keep my eyes on Jesus. Keep my eyes on you. So, Lord, I pray for folks here today, regardless of what they've been through, what they're going through, what they will go through, individually, corporately, or however they experience it. I pray, oh God, that they would not panic, but they would rest in the knowledge that you've got this. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 That was fantastic.